Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the plan and will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is from the prophet Amos as recorded in chapter 5, verses 6 through 7 and 10 through 15. Seek the Lord and live, or he will rush upon the house of Joseph like fire. The fire will consume, and no one will extinguish it for Bethel. There are some who turn justice into wormwood, who throw righteousness to the ground. There are those who hate an arbitrator in the city gate. They despise anyone who speaks honestly. That is why you trample on the poor and you collect taxes on their grain. You have built houses of cut stones, but you will not live in them. You have planted choice vineyards, but you will not drink their wine. For I know that your rebellious deeds are many and your sins are numerous. You who are enemies of a righteous man, you who take bribes, they thrust away needy people in the city gate. That is why a prudent man will be silent in that time, because it is an evil time. Seek God and not evil so that you may live, and then it will be like this for you. The Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you claim. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord, the God of armies, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. This is the word of our Lord. In our gospel lesson for this Sunday in Mark chapter 10, there was a rich young man who came to Jesus, and he kept the Ten Commandments. Everybody who knew him would probably guess that this guy was going to heaven and probably even figured his wealth was God blessing him because he was such a strong believer. However, Jesus tells him, one thing you lack, sell everything and give it away to the poor. Now, many people today pull that story out of its context, and they think Jesus is saying, if you're rich, you are definitely going to hell because God hates the rich. But what about Abraham? Abraham was very wealthy for his time. What about King David? What about Lazarus? Not poor Lazarus, but Lazarus, the one Jesus rose from the grave with Mary and Martha, his sisters. They were certainly not poor. In fact, think about, for example, Joseph of Arimathea, who had just finished a tomb for himself. He's a wealthy man, and he gave it to the Lord on Good Friday. Of course, on Sunday morning, the Lord gave it back. These people were almost definitely saved. No, what was going on there was that Jesus was showing the man who his true God was. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 24, we're told the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus told them again, children, how hard is it for those who trust in their riches to enter the kingdom of God? His wealth had a place in his heart equal to or truly above God. And when Jesus told him to sell everything and give it all away to the poor, he walked away sad because he was not going to give up his money, his false God. He loved it more than God. Like I said, people who knew him would have been shocked to find out you're going to hell. But are there other ways in which we might be going to hell and truly not realize it? In today's text... Amos is sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. They have been worshiping false gods, but right now they are in militarily their prime and they're very prosperous. But it isn't going to last. 
And Amos points out some of the ways that they're seeking money. And we see that today. People can let power, prestige, knowing the right people, health, spouses. There's other things people can use and let have in, in, in their hearts have the place that belongs to God. So today we're going to ask the question, what does seeking the Lord and having life look like? And our text actually shows us the opposite so we will discuss the opposite of our text to see what that looks like. Now, our text begins at, at uh, verse six saying, carefully seek the Lord and live so that he does not rush the house of Joseph like fire. Then it will devour and there is no one who extinguishes it for Bethel. Remember, Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons, their descendants inherited a double portion of the promised land. And Manasseh is a major section of that northern kingdom. So that's why he points to Joseph, who was the guy who'd had a coat of many colors. But it's really sad as he mentions Bethel. See, Joseph's father, Jacob, before he had children, God had already made it clear that the birthright was to be Jacob's. But Isaac favored his brother Esau and wanted to give it to him. So Joseph tricks it out of his father, what was rightfully his by God's own word. And then he had to flee for his life. Now, one night on the way to his uncle Laban's, he falls asleep and, and he sees these angels coming and going up and down a stairway or a ladder. And he says, surely this is the house of God, Beth El. And God had promised him that he would be with him and he would return safely uh, with a full family. So it's really sad here that now Bethel had become a place of worship of false gods, of idolatry. And God is saying, I'm going to abandon you. I made the promise with your ancestor here, but, but you're done for. Carefully seek the Lord and live. Now, he's not saying make your decision for Christ to a bunch of unbelievers who didn't know him. These were people who were supposed to be believers. And so carefully seeking the Lord would be going to Jerusalem for, to make your sacrifices for your sins and to be cleansed of your sin and to hear the word of God. And living here, the nation being alive, remember, it had promises of the coming Savior that have now been fulfilled. And so we don't need to worry about that anymore. But, but truly, to live would be alive in God having faith instead of those things that were their false gods. So how do you and I as believers carefully seek the Lord and have life? We have to come to the tools God uses to distribute his grace to us. And that is first and foremost, his word. In his word, we are told that he did all the work to save us. We're told that we can't save ourselves. We combine that word with water and that's where the Holy Spirit is sealed into a person's heart. And then every day in baptism, that person has a new man that is empowered to literally drown the sinful nature. And we combine that word with the Lord's Supper where that new man that the Holy Spirit has given birth to is nourished literally by the Lord's body and blood in a way that defies science. So what does seeking the Lord and having life look like? It's being alive in God now, knowing that you are citizens of heaven. It will be yours. And, and we know that and we're encouraged in it and we're strengthened and nourished in it by faithfully using the tools God uses to distribute uh, his grace. Now, in connection with those tools, we're told in verse seven, those who keep on turning justice to wormwood and they have thrown righteousness down to the earth. Wormwood was bitter. When you turn justice into bitterness, for example, a woman gets raped. Terrible, terrible thing. And then the guy, because of some pol political ideas, is let out on bail reform and he goes out and he murders somebody else. 
Now, the people who were seeking bell reform truly meant well, but the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, and we're going to get into this in a minute, they were perverting justice for their own gain. One cannot truly understand justice unless they know God. Now, it seems to me oftentimes when I hear of judges who they've put the Ten Commandments up in their courtroom and somebody, because of separation of church and state, has had a problem and are suing to have them removed, it often seems to me like those, justice, those judges are often on a guilt trip. But the truth of the matter is, the nation of Israel had had the Ten Commandments and it rejected them. Nations like America today would be wise to look at uh, some of the biblical principles that are set out. The punishment should fit the crime, not be a slap on the wrist for a harsh crime, nor should it be letting uh, a, a, a slight crime off with a harsh punishment. So they are perverting justice. And, and it also says, um, and they have thrown righteousness down to the earth. And, and there's a word picture there. See, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, mankind lost righteousness. Even their children did not have righteousness. The only place we find righteousness is coming from the throne of God. So it's almost like if you have, uh, for example, an aroma dispenser up on a shelf and, and, and somebody grabs that and smashes it down on the ground. It's like they've reached up to heaven and said, Lord, this is what you consider righteous and we don't care. They, and that's one of the reasons why justice is being so perverted. And today, sadly, even Christians do this and don't realize it when they think that they're you know, just neutral against God and with the right push, then they'll, then they'll accept God or that they can earn forgiveness or that they can earn. And that's the natural religion of man, that you earn righteousness by doing the right things. That's smashing it down to the ground. But Christ... We are told when we come to those tools God uses to dispense his grace, especially in the word, we're told that Christ is true God who was righteous and he wasn't smashed down to the earth. He took on human flesh for you and I and he bore the punishment for our sins and he sent his Holy Spirit to give us the faith that now our new man is righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So what does seeking the Lord and having life look like? faithfully using the tools God uses to dispense his grace. And that is what enables our new man to faithfully embrace God's justice and righteousness. And remember, God's justice is merciful. He forgives us and makes us his children so that we then have his justice and righteousness in us. Our text continues in verse 10. They have hated the one who rebukes them at the gate and they continue detesting the one who speaks completeness. Now, in those days in Israel, if you had a court case, it was the elders and the city officials, and it was at the gate where, the, where you open things up. So today it would be like saying they have hated the one who rebukes them in the courtroom. Imagine if you have judges who are not acting just, and somebody comes in and shows them, you are violating the Constitution, and you're being selfish. So the judge has them thrown in jail for contempt of court. And he says there, and they continue detesting the one who speaks completeness. When, at least in the movies, when, you, when a, a, a witness is sworn in in court, they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. See, lots of times you can leave off something and tell the truth, but you're just leaving out a detail. You're not lying in man's eyes. But completeness is telling the whole truth. For example, today we can have scientific research come out and people can manipulate it to say the opposite of what it says. Science has proven this, and unless you've read the journal, you wouldn't know. Well, the same is true for Christians because 
Unless God comes to us with his word, which begins with his law, his law shows us you're unrighteous, you're unjust, you are not justified, you are a slave to the devil and you're going to hell. Unless we have that truth proclaimed to us, we're in trouble. And it's never fun, but when somebody comes and says, uh, you're embracing this sin like the rich young man was embracing wealth or like the people of Israel were embracing their positions and taking advantage of people. When we let our sin have the place to God, we're going to end up in hell. And it hurts to be told that. But that humbles us. Then instead of the Pharisee went to the temple and said, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this tax collector here. I ain't a sinner. That guy didn't go home forgiven because he didn't know his sin. But the tax collector, he knew he was a rotten sinner. He beat his chest and all he could do is say, Lord, have mercy on me. And the Lord had mercy on him because he knew he needed mercy. So when somebody comes to us with the law and rebukes us, we're actually grateful even though it's miserable because it humbles us. It lets us see. And and we're able to then use our new man to struggle more against our sinful nature because his tactic has been exposed. But the whole truth also is we can't save ourselves, but God took on human flesh and he did that for us. The whole truth is we're slaves to the devil, but the cross of Christ has busted the shackles of our slavery free with forgiveness. And so what does seeking the Lord and having life look like when God has brought us into faith, sending somebody with the word to us in the sacraments? And it means faithfully using the tools God uses to dispense his grace, faithfully embracing God's justice and righteousness and embracing God's truth, even when it points out our sin. Our text continues showing the injustice. It says, therefore, because you guys are trampling on the lowly. Now, let me stop there because this word doesn't translate very well into English today. You see, thanks to the Enlightenment and capitalism and everything, up until the Enlightenment, you had a very small upper class of very wealthy people, and then you had a whole lot of poor people, often even in, in, in slavery. And you had a very small middle class. But if everybody was rich, nobody would be rich. But the idea of capitalism, and it needs its checks and balances, but it's hard for us to understand this word today because capitalism has really inflated the middle class. And so there's more people in the middle class than in the postmodern world than there is in the upper and lower classes, which really is a good thing. But here it doesn't just mean being poor. It can mean that. It can mean somebody who's weak. It can mean somebody who doesn't have any political clout, you know, friends in low places. So trying to explain what that means, I'm going to translate that as lower class. Therefore, because you guys are trampling on the lower class, you guys think you're above them and you take advantage of them. They don't have any power to defend themselves. And he says, and you keep on taking tribute of grain from him. Now, this is city officials and stuff who are in power, uh, who are in positions of power. And I want to point out something else there, too. Jesus in the New Testament tells us uh, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We are to pay taxes because the government, it's not to protect me from myself, but it's to protect me from those who would harm my life. And since I need my property to sustain my life, it's to protect my property from those who would take it away from me. That's the role of government. And it's got to pay for taxes. It's got to take taxes to support a police force. But I would argue here, when governments are overtaxing, when they use taxation to oppress and strong arm their people, this text here is telling them that's wrong because that's exactly what was going on in that northern kingdom of Israel. But he says to them, you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you will not keep on living in them. You have planted lush vineyards, 
but you will not keep on drinking their wine, because I have known that great are your rebellions, and many, or mighty, are your sins. You are harassers of the righteous, bribe-takers, and they have thrust aside the needy at the gate. Somebody coming into town saying, I need help, I've been robbed. Get out of here. We don't want that. You're too inconvenient for me. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. And the big thing is, for those who are oppressing the people and taking advantage of them, God says, you're not getting away from it with it. And he also tells them uh, there's going to be a temporal punishment. And it really is sad because the Canaanites had a very perverted religion. They were very perverse people. The Moabites literally fried children like, sa like sausages to their god, Moloch. And so God had warned them, even Sodom and Gomorrah, which had happened 400 years earlier, was a warning to these people. But when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, they, God was going to hand them over. And their, the houses they had built would become the Israelites' houses. The vineyards they had planted and the crops, that would become Israel. So they would literally come into an established region. That was their inheritance. And God here is pointing out now, because you guys are doing this, I'm taking your inheritance away. I've known you've been doing this and you thought you were getting away with it, but you're not. He would use the Assyrians and the Assyrians would haul them off and plant in other people there. Uh, pagans would get the inheritance that was meant for people who uh, were to wait for the coming savior, but they had rejected him. But for the poor, the lower class there, there's something else going on here as well. Now, you take, for example, when Israel was enslaved by Egypt, they cried out to God because they couldn't do anything for themselves. Somebody higher than them with power had to come in. And it was 80 years later, roughly, but God in his timing came and man did he deliver them. Those who were believers, they might have thought it was miserable being stuck in the lower class and, and, and not getting your day in court and having justice perverted and everything. But you know who the Assyrians didn't haul off? They didn't bother with the lower class. So in many ways, those who worshiped the Lord were actually better off that they were being oppressed at this point. God works through crosses. But they would have prayed to God. God knew those people weren't getting away with it. And it's a reminder for us today, people like Joseph Stalin, who was killing more Russians than anybody else. He's killing his own people. He says, you're not getting away with it. I'll take your life. And other times he says, I'll use another government to dethrone you. But those who were being oppressed, those who were believers, they were praying to the Lord and God heard it. Now, I also want to point out through this text here that many atrocities have happened in history in the false name of Christ. For example, the Inquisition, where people would say, hey, I've been reading the Bible, this is wrong, and the quote-unquote church at that time, zealously claiming they were defending the word of God, killed the people who were actually standing on the word of God. This still happens in the visible church today, and it's wrong. And it's sad, sometimes it happens accidentally. In most postmodern civilizations, if you look at the welfare system they've established, it's meant by, it was created by people who meant well. But lots of times what you'll find is it actually oppresses the poor worse. What I mean is, for example, if a person has lost their job and has to get on welfare, it's all or nothing. If they were to get a job, for example, a minimum wage job, like at a fast food restaurant, they don't, it's not, well, you're going to get some welfare and you'll come out actually better off because you're working. It's nope, you'd be better off on welfare. You're, either you get a job where you're going to be better off with so that you can get off it or you just stay on it. And this is a way in which people are oppressed. And we're going to get into that point here in a minute. But politicians often don't speak up because if you say, I want to reform that, 
People say, well, you can't reform that without making it more painful for a little while, those who are already on it. And so they don't speak up so they can get reelected. But Christ has removed the barrier of our sins. He had taken on human flesh. So when we're being oppressed, we pray to the Lord. And the amazing thing is, that faith that we are told about when we go to those tools that dispense God's grace, we're also told that Christ not only lived in our place, died in our place, and rose in our place, he ascended into heaven where he's ruling over all creation for you. So sometimes we're praying out and Christ removes the sin, so God hears our prayer. And we're going, God, why aren't you answering? But like those poor people, the lower class in Israel, God's actually looking ahead to, the, to what's going to happen in the future, uh, and he's taking care of it. So what does seeking the Lord and having life look like? Faithfully using the tools God uses to dispense his grace, where we are then encouraged and reminded of because we're alive in God, we are constantly casting our suffering upon him and letting him take care of it, just as he would with the Israelites, just as he did with Pharaoh, just as he does with those who work against him. Our last point comes in our last three verses, which say, therefore, the prudent person keeps on being silent at this time because it's an evil time. Carefully seek the good and not the evil so that you keep on having life and so that the Lord God of multitudes will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love the good. Openly place justice at the gate. Perhaps the Lord God of multitudes will be gracious to a remnant of Joseph. Remember what I said a little while ago about politicians keeping silent. They don't want to reform certain things, even though they know that they're wrong because they do want to get reelected. Well, it is often the case. And think about the way we are just devouring, devouring each other in America today, accusing each other of sins that aren't even there because of political correctness and everything. And you know what? A smart person will just keep their mouth shut, won't they? But for somebody who knows the Lord, knows the Lord's justice, knows the Lord's righteousness, doesn't mean they're going to open up their mouth in an arrogant way. But they can't keep silent. So you guys need God. Now, God warns the Israelites to, uh, uh, to carefully seek what is good, to carefully uh, and reject the evil, and then they would have, keep on having life. Because when you're embracing evil, like that rich young man was embracing wealth in his heart, and he was killing his new person because he was driving the Holy Spirit out of his heart. But this is the Lord God of multitudes. God can call on angels. He, he's, he's above all creation. He can use all the elements. He says, he will be with you just as you have said. So here he tells Israel, repent and I won't send the Assyrians. He says, hate evil and love the good. Openly place justice at the gates and perhaps the Lord God of multitudes will be gracious to a remnant of Joseph. Again, this was the northern kingdom. God, God may be gracious to you if you instill this into your children and everything, but if you keep on going on your course, the Assyrians are definitely coming. So this reminds us, when we're alive in, in Christ, the Ten Commandments, they tell us what justice and righteousness is, but they can't make us be just and righteous. Only being connected to Christ. When the Holy Spirit gives birth to that new man in us, he has engrafted him onto Christ. I like to say the sap of Christ flows through you so that you produce good works. Good works, for example, like trusting in God 100% for your salvation. Hearing his word where he nourishes that new man. And yes, then you do show love for your neighbor. And you do struggle with your sinful nature, which are all good works. And the means of grace, again, those tools God used to distribute grace, they empower and nourish the new man to struggle with the sinful nature to do that. So what does, 
What does seeking the Lord and having life look like? Hating evil and growing the fruits. Those fruits that the Ten Commandments tell us, those are good works. They don't save you, but they are what holiness is. There are ways we can thank and praise God. Growing those fruits that God says are good. And so today we've asked the question, what does seeking the Lord and having life look like? Faithfully using the tools God uses to dispense grace. And then we're able to faithfully embrace God's justice and righteousness. And we're able to embrace God's truth, even when it points out our sin. But that truth also tells us we need a savior and have a savior. It means casting our suffering upon him and letting him take care of it. Of course, we're stewards with what he entrusts to us, but we know the big picture. God's the one in the throne ruling for us and we're hating evil and we're growing the fruits that God, not ourselves, not what we want to be good according to our sinful nature, but what God says are good. And the irony is there, he's already saved us and when we grow those fruits, there are saying thank you to the Lord, but the Lord blesses us in doing them as well. And we get the privilege, others say, there's good, there's somebody I can trust. And they come to us and God gives us the opportunity to share with them about his justice and his righteousness and salvation in him. Amen. Now, may the God of all hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.